Welcome to America's Defense Communities, the podcast, a production of the Association of Defense Communities. I'm Randy Ford. Today, we're going to hear from top leaders of installation commands on the challenges they face and how they see the relationship between military operations and defense community needs. Here's who you're going to hear from. Lieutenant General Omar Jones, the Commanding General of Army Installation Management. Major General John Allen Jr., Commander of Air Force Installations and Mission Support Center. Major General David Maxwell, Commanding General of Marine Corps Installations Command. And Rear Admiral John Minoni, Acting Commander of Navy Installations Command. This discussion was one of our most popular sessions at ADC's recent Installation Innovation Forum in Orlando. It was a town hall with all questions coming from event attendees. It was moderated by Sal Najomian, a member of the ADC Board of Directors and the CEO of Matrix Design Group. Let's listen to their discussion. Given the spectrum of threats that are out there that could potentially impact critical infrastructure inside and outside the gates uh, and disrupt uh, what we're doing and the devastation that comes from that, how are each of your services training your installation leaders to partner with the community uh, where, you're, uh, where, the, where the workforce uh, inside and outside the gate can come together because these problems are not gonna stop at a fence line. Sir, I'll start with you. First, resiliency. And you heard that from some of my teammates here, but it is resiliency on the installation. And Sal, to your point, it has gotta be resiliency off the installation infrastructure, but also relationships and the people um, to make sure that if we do have a threat or a natural disaster uh, that is going to inhibit us from projecting power any place in the world, uh, that we have made sure that installation, its energy, its water, its security is resilient so it can still do what it needs to do for our national defense. I think we've made tremendous progress over the past 12 to 18 months on the installation, uh, but I think we talked a little about this during the Army Town Hall this morning. Our next step is that continued growth off the installation uh, to make sure we're, we're growing resilient installations as a community as we go forward. Okay. Sure, Maxwell. So, so um, I think one, we, we already do this at one level in the context is, uh, as uh, was just mentioned in the context of natural disasters and oftentimes exercising the emergency management response framework and testing that. Uh, the challenge that we've got and that we have the opportunity going forward is how do you upscale that and get after threats and, that are not natural, threats that are man-made, threats that are intentional, uh, and exercise that across the, uh, across the civilian military framework and then for, from an installations perspective up inside and into the operational framework that we, that we have. And so, so I think there's that piece of that of just expanding the scope. The second thing I would say is, as we think about, uh, about these threats is, is partnerships, three-way partnerships, if you will. So for example, NSA has a cybersecurity co collaboration center uh, that is intentionally designed to reach out to small businesses that may be partners with us that provide cybersecurity support in a unique way. And so we're working uh, to do that outreach with some of our smaller partners to, to engage with uh, NSA. That's a great initiative. Thanks, sir. Ben uh, Maybe to your, to your question about how are we uh, interacting with installation leaders to thrive and understand in this space. Um, you know, like, like the other two gentlemen, uh, mission assurance through energy assurance, cyber uh, protection, particularly for control systems and operational technology, um, two areas where we are very much um, 
centrally planning and decentrally executing those programs. And, and that central planning comes from subject matter experts who are pretty credible in those areas out in the field with installations doing the planning. Um, so I, I think that is, a, that is um, one way we're raising the awareness and building a, a, a subject matter expertise more, more distributed across the formation. But you know, this was a question that actually came up in our town hall. Um, our contracting community does a pretty good job of educating uh, young contracting officers on things like IGSAs. Yep. I don't know, uh, we, could, we could likely do better educating uh, more of our, our, our combat support, combat service support leaders and the opportunities that this presents. So it was a good, a good takeaway from this morning's session. So I'm gonna ask a follow on and I'm gonna come back to you gentlemen after I get to the Admiral. Mm -hmm. What does the Air Force do to formally train mission support group commanders, air base wing commanders, wing commanders, to understand the best way to use the bevy of assets that are sitting right outside their gates? Because I'll tell you, as a former wing commander, no one ever trained me. Yeah. You want me to answer that? I do no, want you to answer that, yes. Um, well, you know, um, I don't want to tell you it's solved relative to, to when you were a wing commander, but we're, um, these programs are a lot more mature, okay. frankly. Um, you and I were wing commanders, and you're, you're a little, little more vintage than me, but I was a couple <laughs> years behind you. Um, and so I, I know what that was. I, I was in wing command in 2013 when we formally started uh, our community partnership program. I had the privilege of being a station at, outside of Rapid City, North, uh, South Dakota, at Ellsworth Air Force Base uh, six years earlier, and they were masters at community partnership already. Um, um, I would say the whole of the Air Force and, and Space Force in our communities have, have marched closer to that level of focus on this. So um, formal training though, um, no. A lot, of, a lot of conversation through commander preparation seminars and how we deliberately prepare commanders to go out and take command understanding what the big issues are of the day. And this is, this is a big issue when it comes to the power projection platforms and base operating support. Um, I think there's some more opportunity on the formal side and, and we have our, our schoolhouses where we train engineers, where we train contracting officers. I think there's more opportunity there. Okay, great. Admiral, the original question and then also training of uh, yeah, base COs. So to the first question on threats, I think it's not so much of a um, training piece to that. We, I'm trying to work with regions and installations and all the organizations, both civilian and military, on looking at first things first. And I know this may sound simple and common sense, but I think we lose it, uh, is that missions got to come first. Then you got to be able to assess the risk associated with whatever, whatever the mission of your installation is or region is. And then you got to communicate that risk in a manner up chain that makes sense to operational people and not and get away from this constant programmatic talk of dollars and resources and palms and that type of stuff. So really be able to think about warfighting from our installations as, as warfighting platforms as well as uh, logistics platforms. To your second question, we bring all our installation triads, so second in commands, commanding officers, and senior enlisted leaders, command master chiefs, in for about three weeks to our headquarters and put them through a formal course of study. It is, it is fairly nascent at this point. So we've been through a bunch, but we're still developing it. And, and what we do in there is have uh, certain seminars where we'll 
talk about sieve mill relationships mm -hmm. and how you leverage people outside the gate and how all the good ideas don't have to come from within the fence line and really hammer that stuff home through you know, experience learning and places where we've made mistakes. That's fantastic, I didn't know that was happening. Uh, are, uh, General Maxwell, are you guys part of that same Navy training to, or is the Marine uh, Corps something no, separate? So, so the Marine Corps, we, we uh, ours is a condensed, more compressed time, not three weeks. So we'll bring our commanders, prospective commanders, key staff leaders in for about a week uh, and, and provide a high level overview of just all the all things installations. But what I would say, I think, is uh, as we look at training and formalized training, uh, training can be also be exercises and what you do. So black start exercises, those constructs work. Um, I would also say, actually, it's less important for the commander or the XO or the, or the sergeant major to know. But where we see the expertise, you tends to be with with our civilian leadership within the installation who have long and established ties with the community. And so, and actually it's reflected right here. 50% of the population I think I heard is military or with the, with the military organizations, another 25% with community partners and then 25% uh, of you are um, contractors and support in some way. That's that relationship that, that really becomes the enduring one that helps us formalize training. You can't formalize training inside the fence line and not do it collectively. Well, I 100% agree with you. I will echo something that my boss used to tell me and I repeat to my team. If the commander finds something interesting, then the staff finds it fascinating. <laughs> so uh, if fair, that, fair if that CEO comes in a proponent, then now everyone's a proponent. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Sir? So you, I think you will hear similar themes, particularly to, uh, to Dave's comment there. So our formal instruction, you know, we bring every new garrison commander and every new command sergeant major to San Antonio for a two-week course. Mm -hmm. um, but the first thing, when I, I always do the opening session, and what I tell them is they were picked because of their leadership potential. And that they're not going to be experts in installation management. They're not going to learn all the science of energy and water and wastewater resilience and all of those kind of things. They're going to be pretty darn good at it by the end of two years, but they're not going to master it. But if they remember they were picked to be leaders, uh, and being a leadership, being a leader is investing in those relationships, uh, both within their team, uh, which is General Maxwell's point, um, most of their team are civilian professionals that have been doing this in many cases for decades. They have relationships off the installation, they're experts at the science, um, but also have the relationships uh, with all of those local communities, industry partners. So when a garrison commander comes on board, they should know those wave tops so they can focus on things that are important because that'll get their, their team focused on it, just as your commander used to tell you. Right. Uh, but a critical part of the relationship or the leadership is investing in the relationships, on and off the installation, and bringing folks together to help them solve problems. Right. Um, so looking at my phone, uh, lots of questions coming in. I'm gonna blend a couple of these together so we can kind of hit some topics that are coming across lots of folks. All the services have been taking risk in infrastructure for years. We know, I remember singing that song years ago, uh, but we seem to find ourselves again at a crossroads. This is impacting retention, recruiting, um, uh, training for our, our, our young men and women. Um, what are your strategies, and General Maxwell, I'll start with you then and go down the line and finish with General Jones, um, to uh, recapitalize and maintain, especially what's in the news now, unaccompanied housing, critical base infrastructure, training facilities as such. Yeah, so we just uh, are rolling out right now what uh, an initiative, Barracks 2030, 
That Barracks 2030 has three main lines of effort. The first is really for Marine Corps transformative, maybe not for everybody else, but which <laughs> involves uh, taking our Barracks Marines who are Barracks managers and civilianizing them so that we get some continuity. And that's a, that's a main piece on barracks management. The other is modernization, which is quite honestly, we've got uh, probably excess capacity that is, uh, that is not fully utilized. So making the, making the right decisions to, to what we divest of and then how we modernize uh, to get closer to the OSD standards. And the third is actually just material. So our furniture replacements in the barracks is on a 32 year life cycle. It's built to last, uh, but 32 years might be a little long still. So, so we are looking to try to get that down closer to 10, especially for, uh, for young junior Marines that may not be as easy on furniture. So replacing furniture every 30 years, whether needs it or not, is not a great strategy? Got it, okay. Uh, General Allen, I remember talking dorm master plans when I was still in uniform, so yeah. uh, over to you. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about this this morning. You know, I, I, I let people know we're, we're roughly 65% resource for what we need to do right by our installations across the portfolio. And so should we just do everything at 65%? Or should we pick some things to do better than that? And, and the Air Force, going back to 2022, has focused on dormitory condition. Uh, and uh, that, that really equates to about $300 million a year that we're putting into refurbishing, um, uh, refurbishing our dormitories until we meet the, the standard that we've set for ourselves. Uh, and, and we think we'll hit that mark in 28 and we'll be able to throttle that back just to sustain it and then turn our focus elsewhere. Um, and I would say the same thing in housing. You know, we, we essentially need to double our housing spend from our historic averages um, because of the condition of some of the houses that we have overseas and the need for us to do some things uh, inside some of our privatization projects to make sure they are uh, financially uh, stable for, for the, the long term going forward. So we have uh, made that focus. The challenge is that that, that creates larger gaps elsewhere. Right. And so keep coming back to what are the things that we can do together um, to leverage public or private uh, capital or do things differently that don't involve having to just spend the same amount of money in a different way um, so that we're not 65% resourced anymore. We can make the, we can sustain the numerator in the programming calculus and reduce the denominator. How does tomorrow's 65% feel, or how does today's 65% feel more like 90% tomorrow? Well, General Maxwell's thinking right now, how do I get that $15 million fire station for $4 million like my <laughs> civilian community did? So that's a good question. I, I bet some people out here have some answers for you and your yeah. team. Yeah. So, Admiral? So our new CNO, CNO Frank Ketty, when she was vice chief, took on this quality of service uh, mantra as one of her priorities. And uh, that's definitely trickled down to my level and below in terms of unaccompanied housing or barracks. And... Um, you know, one of the things that I'm pushing from my level that we'll see programmatic resource uh, results is developing an unaccompanied housing slash barracks don't touch list. That I'm not going to go raid those accounts, take money out of them to pay some other bill like a seismic bill or a weapons bill. It's going to, there's just too much reputational 
and sailor risk in those accounts that we cannot continue to fund them at 60 cents on the dollar. So that's item one. Item two is then increasing the amount of funding for those accounts because if we just sustain at 100% today, all we're doing is sustaining the same level we're at, is how do we increase the amount of uh, program money in those accounts so that we can get on the upslope to repairing and reviving, sometimes demoing some of these places. The other uh, line of effort that we're looking for is legislative help, legislative relief, to get the authorities to expand the pilots like we've done with Pacific Beacon, which is a public-private venture out in San Diego, extremely successful for barracks and unaccompanied housing in terms of quality of service, quality of life for those sailors. All right, sir. So we talked barracks and we talked about infrastructure, if that's okay. Yeah, so, please do. Uh, absolute commitment for all the reasons you talked about, Sal, from the Army leadership to get our, our unaccompanied housing, getting our barracks right. So we have 2008 permanent party barracks across the Army, permanent party barracks buildings. 81% of them are at the right quality, the other 19% are not. And our senior leaders would tell you that the soldiers deserve better. Uh, so that is really where our focus is. And the effect, just as you've heard the other panelists and Sal described, it affects um, recruitment, accessions, it affects retention, it affects quality of life, which has a direct connection to readiness uh, for our soldiers. So Secretary Wormuth has committed $1.2 billion a year for the next 10 years just to go into barracks. All three components of the Army, um, but to make sure we're taking care of our barracks. He's also directed that as we receive our sustainment funding, we will fund 100% of the sustainment requirements, preventive and demand maintenance for our barracks as well to make sure that uh, we are taking care and providing that safe, secure, quality housing that our single soldiers deserve as well. And then just as you heard, we are also looking at uh, the pilot the Navy has done in San Diego. Uh, we're going to have a barracks summit in D.C. the second week of December where we're going to look at all things barracks, what the senior leaders from the Secretariat, the Army staff, senior non-commissioned officers from across the Army to look at what do we need to do to sustain that investment going forward and do we need to do things differently than we've done in the past to make sure we're taking care of our soldiers that are uh, living in unaccompanied housing. Now, your bigger question about infrastructure, uh, we, we've had a program about the past four years or so called the Facility Investment Program that's continued to evolve. I spent the last week of September talking to every single senior commander in, in the Army about what are their infrastructure requirements and infrastructure priorities. Bringing that together across the Army, we'll bring that to the Army four-star generals in December, the Army senior leadership in January, so they're able to make risk-based decisions as they look at the anticipated Army total obligation authority of the next 10 years, where do they want to make investments to buy down risk, to invest against the Army's highest priorities, and where do they transparently want to accept risk across Army infrastructure. But we will have all the priorities and commanders across the Army brought together for the Secretary and our Chief of Staff and Sergeant Major to take a look at and make sure that every dollar they invest in infrastructure is getting the greatest possible effect for the Army. So that was a lot of meetings in one week, by the way. Just I'm sure it was. So yeah. All right, I'm gonna start this uh, next question down with General um, Allen. Uh, Air Force has kind of been on the forefront of community partnerships, like you said, started the program about 10 years ago or so. Um, if you could remove one law or one impediment or make a like a silver bullet to improve that process, to include things like EULs and other partnership type things, mm -hmm. what would what would you like to see happen? S scoring relief. Mm -hmm. And why don't you explain what that means to yeah, some folks who um, may not understand that? So, so we are we are prevented right now from leveraging private sec uh, sector capital or other other forms of public capital 
uh, without essentially bringing the total value of that investment uh, to bear in a program in, in the first year. So if we want to uh, amortize the payback of an investment someone may make for a facility that we want to use over 20 years, we can't do that now. We bring the total value of that investment in year one. Uh, and it is real hard. We, you know, it, it, we, we, we got relief from that uh, in order to do privatized housing. Without that relief, we would have had to score the value of, of very substantial investments that private capital was resourcing and then paid for over the life of the project. Um, but that, that was a, 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 an authority that was focused on privatized housing and isn't available to us now. But there is precedence. Yeah, there is precedence. And if we really wanna play in this, in this market with a more business mind, that's I think the, the one thing that would, would be a great first step. I'm really glad you opened with that one because there's a lot of people who don't understand the complexities associated with that process. Right. So, right. Admiral? So I'm gonna just talk about a, maybe a little bit of a different tact on this is, uh, there's this notion of risk that a commander of an installation incurs some sort of legal risk when he's talking to the civilian community. And I don't mean just the public servants, but maybe some of the business people that are out there that maybe want to do some investments. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. So in the Navy, we're starting to see commanders really engaging with the local community on solutions inside the fence line and outside the fence line. And what I conveyed to the entire group having experienced this during the pandemic and then when I was on Guam, the thing that, and it's noted in all the investigations after that thing, was that the thing that kind of saved us out there was the civ mill relationship, being tight with the government. And they trusted us and we trusted them. Mm -hmm. And even though we always didn't agree on whatever the issue was or the solution, we knew we were doing it for the right reason, so we talked all the time. So I'd remove whatever that notion is of risk. Commanders should be out in the communities talking about how to solve problems across the fence line almost daily. And then you can worry, the lawyers and whoever will worry about the risk later on. I guarantee you there's about 100 communities in here writing down, Admiral Mononi <laughs> said, you can talk to me. I am comfortable with that. Yeah, that's good. That's good because they need to hear that. So thank you. Sir? I think the Milcon process. And I think it is not just legislative change. We own a good bit of that. Um, you know, clearly our teammates, the Corps of Engineers, uh, own a good bit of that. But I think we have got to, back to the $15 million fire station, there's a cost piece of it, uh, but there's also a timeline piece. When you're looking at from, okay, we have approval to execute a project, and now you're cutting the ribbon seven years later. Uh, the Army's in its biggest modernization it has been, it has undertaken since the early 1980s, late 1970s, and to have the infrastructure be able to keep up with where we are going from a force structure and equipment modernization perspective, we've got to shorten that timeline. But I think that's probably the one of the biggest piece of reform, and we've got to do it hand in glove with our legislative teammates. How much time do you have afterwards to talk? I got some ideas. <laughs> I so, welcome that. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah, General Maxwell. Yeah, I, I would I would echo the the Milcon conversation and the alternative ways of, of looking for that. And we've done done you've got examples of that where it has occurred. The uh, the gap that I think we are facing today that I think bears increasing attention is actually as we look at our uh, our utilities and the underlying infrastructure in there and the connective relationships from a cybersecurity perspective 
I think uh, that is an area because the, the power, power line, the power grid doesn't start or stop at the installation. Uh, it doesn't start or stop in the local communities. It's a connection, we saw that, and you know, whether it's Colonial Pipeline from a fuel distribution or whether pick your ransom ha ransomware hack of the day, uh, that you cannot, those are totally, completely connected. And so I think uh, our attention collectively on the cybersecurity risks and understanding the interrelationships between uh, the communities and the installations has to be uh, a, an effort that we've got to just get way smarter on going forward. Great. I'm looking at the time. There's, I've got a half dozen more questions. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick a really easy one for the admiral. Um, Please, <laughs> AI. Oh God. Um, <laughs> wh where do you see AI in installation management of the future as we move forward? First, Real simple I, how one. How do you spell that? <laughs> um, so, I can't really answer the question because I haven't really thought about it. To be completely honest. Uh, what we have started to think about, and maybe, again, I'm an economics major, maybe AI plays into this, is how do you translate, you know, you've probably seen in the news, we've done some initiatives with unmanned task forces over in the Middle East, unmanned task force down in Fourth Fleet, which is the Caribbean. I've been tasked with, how do you do an unmanned base? Yep. Maybe cyber, maybe security, not just cybersecurity, but security and perimeters and how do you really make sure you have that layered defense but from an unmanned perspective and i imagine ai plays into that but really i'd be lying to you if i gave you any more than that oh i think that's that's part of this the you know the base of the future construct so so to start off, this year we've made a tremendous investment and effort with data analytics across the board. I, mean, I think we all know in the insulation management world, you, you can drown in data very, very quickly. So to be able to both reduce the uh, data entry um, effort for our workforce, but also allow leaders all the way from the garrison level up to the Army Secretariat see real-time data in a way that's going to make them more informed, but also allow them to make um, better informed decisions going forward. But I think that's the first step. The next step is applying AI to that so we can actually start solving problems more quickly. I find, for example, we'll look at an installation energy and water plan and we'll get to a list of vulnerabilities and then we'll literally go down a checklist. Well, is that better to be ERSIP? Is that better to be an ESPC? That is something that AI could do in the blink of an eye um, and give us options very quickly. So I think that's the next step, whether it's machine learning or artificial intelligence to build on top or we're already doing from data analytics. Fantastic. Yeah. Joe Maxwell. Yeah, I, I would say from a from a Marine Corps installations perspective, we're kind of at the beginnings of the uh, of the data journey and and just beginning to kind of really try to understand what it means to be our be able to see ourselves through uh, the data generated in systems and and this all the reporting systems that we use, and so we're at the beginnings of that. But as you step forward and and visualize where we could and potentially should be, you know whether it is uh, pattern recognition associated with counter UAS or small UAS incursions on the installations to be able to rapidly identify track uh, recurring tracks as, as things are accounted for or whether it's being able to look into our facilities related control systems and then understanding patterns that are either occurring either malevolent from evildoers or, or from uh, <laughs> 
or, or from just uh, energy patterns because of, because of spikes or systems that are about to fail and being able to understand that in a way that gets us into a predictive uh, cycle, I think, or the opportunities that are out there. Uh, industry is already there in many respects from a, uh, from a control systems perspective. Uh, we just have to leverage it. Terminal. Um, my organization is relatively young, formed in 2015, and if we have moved the needle in any space in that eight years, it's understanding um, our, our installations portfolio from a data sense. Uh, we, we have made a lot of traction there. So exactly what these two gentlemen said, I was having this conversation just the other day. Um, I want to be able to push a button yep. and just have the Air Force's master plan lay out before me based on all the data that we have. Leveraging artificial intelligence, it tells me what is the optimal use of real estate, what missions belong where, what would be a great way to drive down operating cost. And it sounds crazy, and my staff looked at me like I had two heads, but I think, um, I think that's where we can be, and it's all about um, leveraging artificial intelligence with that data we're collecting. I I'm glad to see you've right. got relatively modest plans for AI. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let me wrap this up here. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read you the results of the poll, right. and then I'll, if you could integrate that into your closing comments, yeah. maybe that'll be the way we'll finish up. And sir, good. I'll start with you. So there were, again, there were two questions. From your perspective, uh, how would you rate the current state of community military partnerships? I'll summarize that by saying nearly 60% said good or excellent. I'm blending numbers here. 40% said fair or neutral, very few pores. In fact, only 1%. Good. So that's one of the questions. The second one, how would you improve partnership collaboration? Uh, the number one answer uh, was similar to what I had asked you all, overcoming legal contracting challenges coming in at 40%, another 20 plus percent on understanding, just clarity of the process, and then you know, a mixing of more community leadership, more military installation leadership involvement, and broader authorities. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's a lot in there to digest as you put your closing thoughts together. Start with me, Sal, thanks. Absolutely, so, yeah. right back um, to you, sir. No, it's, and I think you, you and Karen hit it in your opening comments. It, look, just look how many more people are out here than there were last year in Phoenix, than two years ago in San Antonio. I think it's a direct reflection of the value the Department of Defense, and I'll speak for the Department of the Army, sees in the relationships with the community and with industry. You know, I shared at the Army Town Hall this morning, if you think where we were before 2001, the relationships, they were, they were just there. Uh, an Army uh, installation was just there, usually adjacent to a community. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, we really became very insular in the intervening, uh, what, 22 years now, since 2001, you know, uh, for you know, whether it's deployment purposes, operational security, force protection, all of those things. But the result has been a disconnect between the American people and America's Army. Um, and I think for that reason, um, but also for all the reasons that, you know, our communities are essential uh, to what the Army does. 70% of the Army lives off the installation. Our kids go to school there, our spouses work there, et cetera. Um, and the expertise is resident in the community, the expertise that is resident in industry, 
is just essential to what the Army does. And I think that underscores the points of the poll right there is that it's good to know that folks see it, that we're in a good place and it's getting better. I would like to see that to be like 80 or 90 percent next year when we come back and do this again. Um, but I do think the biggest in, impediment to moving forward um, is actually just everyone embracing the relationship and realizing that going forward for national defense takes all of us and we all have a role in it. And you all know that you'll be sitting here today, um, but it's going to take all of us working hand in glove together to do the things the nation asks us to do. And, and, I, and I welcome that. And I will tell you the garrison commanders that are out here and out there around the world welcome that and look forward to partnering with each and every one of you going forward. So thank you. Thanks, sir. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. And I, I the, uh, the survey results, I think, are great point. Uh, and uh, I think the partnership going forward, it is in a really good place, but it's not there yet. And by there, meaning we're, we've got work to do. And when I think, you know, when we talk about the families that live in the communities, the Marine Corps will say we recruit Marines, and I think this applies to everybody, we recruit Marines, but we retain families. Those families uh, uh, do live out in the communities, and they're dependent on things that are, quite, quite honestly, problems that are common to all. Uh, it's access to health care. It's access to good schools. It is having having jobs that help uh, people to live their daily lives in and out. Those aren't unique to a military problem. That's what we deal with and what you deal with is, is in your communities as well. And so the, the, the opportunities there are, are common across the fence line uh, between the installations and, and the communities. And so I think we've just, um, we've, We've demonstrated the art of the possible in, in a number of places and cases. And now how can we just keep that, keep that momentum going, much like we see the momentum with ADC? Carmel? So when I was an installation commander in 2013, we were formally trying to start the community partnership program. And I had the, was having a conversation with leaders in one of the communities around uh, where I was stationed. We were talking about the Presidio of Monterey and, and what had happened out there and talking about the Association of Defense Communities. And believe it or not, I, I was, that was, those were new things to the people I was talking to. Yeah. So clearly, we're, we're a lot better 10 years later from the polling data that you just did. So that's very encouraging. I think there's opportunities, obviously, to get better. What I would say is thank you for helping us get to where we, where we are today. I, I think we have to look at mining the opportunities um, that, that are out there as an imperative. We certainly look at it that way in the Department of the Air Force. Um, we are not going to resource grow ourselves out of this problem in the Air Force. We're gonna have to think differently. And so um, these partnerships that we have with all of you are, are really the, the, the ground zero for that kind of different thinking. And, I'll end with thanks for everything that you're doing for uh, our nation's military. Um, you've heard it already, but, but most of us live in your communities off the installation. Um, and we're great um, because of how, the, how our people are treated in your community. So thank you for that. Admiral? Yeah, so it is to General Maxwell's point, it is good to hear those results, but you know we're not there yet. And to enable that tight relationship between the community and the installation or the military and the civilians requires daily 
daily engagement and it is exhausting and it is tiring and it's one of those things if you don't water the plant every day it's just not going to grow it's going to die on you and and if you can get to the point where you trust each other you may again may not always agree but you absolutely implicitly trust each other then you're winning you know in the future if the big fight comes the strategic reserve is these communities around our installations. There's, that's where our hospitals are. That's where the people that are going to build our ships and our airplanes are going to come from. Uh, that's where our recruitment's going to happen. And if there's no trust across that fence line, that's a losing proposition. And so I implore everybody in this room, and I thank organizations like ADC, for pushing us together to try and build that trust. I don't know who said it, I think it might have been General Mattis or somebody else. You know, you can't surge trust. We gotta to start today, continue tomorrow, and just keep every day working between the community and the military installations to build that trust and make it grow. Thanks again to Sal Najomian for moderating that discussion at the Installation Innovation Forum. You can see materials from the conference at defensecommunities.org. Just go to the Resources tab. You can also sign up for On Base. That's our daily newsletter. And if you want to join us for Installation Innovation 2024, go to installationinnovation.org and watch for updates. It's taking place in San Antonio in October 2024. Before then, we'll be in D.C. in April for the Defense Communities National Summit. The details on that are at adcsummit.org. America's Defense Communities, the podcast, is a production of the Association of Defense Communities. This episode was produced by Mark Parrott and written by me, Randy Fulber. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.